Good morning. I am not Greg. I am Kristen Paleo. I felt like that was a huge lead-in for him, <laughs> but that's better than me. Um, this morning, I have the privilege of reading our scripture for the sermon. It's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You can follow along on the screen or in the Pew Bible, page 519. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king, only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then I, have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of, of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and is striving after wind." I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This, is also, this also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. 
There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, far apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after the wind. This is the Lord's word. Good morning. I'm not Kristen. Uh, Before we get into our our teaching time, I'm going to dismiss two groups of people. First, uh, kids four years old through kindergarten can be dismissed now to go to children's church. And um, then if you're going to be involved in the ESL sermon discussion, you can be dismissed to the cafe for that discussion. Nice shirt, Ben. Thanks for that introduction. Made me sound like a werewolf or something. Uh, As Ben said, I'm a church planting resident at Liberty Harrisburg. I'll be sent out. Lord willing, in the new year to help Ben plant Midtown Community Church. Um, and I just wanted to tell you, um, my wife and I have been in the area for the past seven years. Um, I had another pastorate before this residency, and so we've known your church for a while now, and I, we are just so thankful for Community E-Free. Um, we, I can't, every person that we meet who is a Christian, we try to send to community um, because we know, like, if they come here, they will receive uh, careful theological instruction, excellent pastoral care, and a tight-knit community of believers. Um, My family has been so blessed by your ministry, your partnership in the gospel, your care for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just wanted to say thank you um, and encourage you that your, um, your care for and partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ has ripple effects far beyond these walls. And my family is evidence of that. So thank you. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 2 of the book of Ecclesiastes. And before we jump in, let's, let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, as we, as we look again into your word this morning, open our hearts so that we would see what you want us to see. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For Christ's sake. Amen. Someday in the future, someone will have a thought of you. Perhaps they'll think of you and they will smile. Maybe they'll think of you and they'll grimace. Maybe they'll think of you and they'll feel nothing at all. In any case, someone someday somewhere will think of you and then they will stop thinking of you and that thought of you will be the last thought that anyone ever has. 
Someday, someone will think the very last thought of you, and then no one ever will again. That's my cheerful opening <laughs> line. It's not cheerful, but it's true. As it is with this book that we're reading right now, it's not cheerful, but it's true. You, you won't find many greeting cards or coffee mugs with a verse from Ecclesiastes 2 on them. This is a dark chapter in a dark book. The, the Koheleth, which is the word um, in Hebrew that is translated as preacher, the Koheleth writes in Ecclesiastes 2 about the vanity the smoke, the hevel of the life that we live. And if we read Ecclesiastes 2 honestly, it sort of feels like we're sitting on the lip of a cliff, feet dangling off the edge, staring out into the void. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Together, we're going to sit on the edge of this cliff and stare into the void for the next 30 minutes. So this is not going to be the most joyful sermon you've ever heard in your life. Because Ecclesiastes 2 is not the most joyful text you've ever read. And while the Koheleth is not someone that you'd want to have come speak at your high school graduation, he offers a profound wisdom to us. Ecclesiastes is in our Bibles for a reason. If you've ever been to a a jewelry store, you'll know the, the black felt cloth is laid beneath the diamond so that when you look upon the diamond, the diamond glimmers and shines all the more brilliantly because of the dark background. Ecclesiastes is like that. It's placed in our Bibles behind the gospel to accentuate the brilliant beauty of it. And it's not until we have that dark backdrop that we can truly begin begin to see the brilliance of this diamond. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at three things that the Kohelet says is vanity in chapter 2. And then we're going to end by placing the the gospel diamond back on the Ecclesiastes cloth and asking, where is Jesus in it all? And so if you're taking notes, we're going to stare into the void together, looking at first, the vanity of pleasure, second, the vanity of wisdom, third, the vanity of work, and then we're going to end by asking, where is Jesus? A few encouragements before we dive into the darkness. First, If you are a Christian in this room this morning, my encouragement to you is this. Let this text upset you in a way that's what it was designed to do. The, The notion that Christians are supposed to be happy all the time is an absurd notion that finds no precedent either in Scripture or in the life of Jesus. Our world has enough happy go lucky Christians. They don't need any more quick, pithy answers to difficult questions. And we do ourselves and our world no favors by having a shallow, bumper sticker kind of Christianity. Our world needs Christians who have grappled with the darkness, thought deeply about death and meaning, and are well acquainted with grief. In fact, being happy all the day long is probably a sign of an emotionally stunted faith, not a mature one. Or like a psychiatric disorder. Therefore, let this upset you. Let it make you spiritually nauseous. And although there is hope, there is a resurrection. Don't rush there. Don't rush there. Have the guts to sit on the cliff and stare for a while. It's good for you. 
Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I, let me just be another one to say uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Jesus is not scared of your doubts or your skepticism or your resentment. Um, he welcomes all of your questions. So my encouragement to you before we dive in is this. Wrestle with the logic of the Koheleth. It would be easy to read chapter 2 and then just kind of say, ah, you know how poets are, like gloomy, depressing, and then dismiss it. But don't do that. Don't dismiss it just because it's gloomy and depressing. First, wrestle with the logic of it. And then if you find it uncompelling, fine. If there's no truth in Christianity, by all means, don't be a Christian. But this chapter is honestly one of the reasons that I'm still a Christian today. So first, wrestle with the logic of it. Ask yourself, what's the reason for my life? In light of my inevitable death, what's the point of working a job or pursuing pleasure or trying to find wisdom? Finally, a word of encouragement to all of us. Our, our culture has indoctrinated each of us since we were born to not ask questions like the Koheleth is going to force us to ask. Blaise Pascal, a uh, 17th mathematician, uh, physicist, philosopher, he, he has this awesome quote where he says, Being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. We live in an age of distraction. Our culture is impressively designed to keep us and prohibit serious self-reflection. We live these distracted, hurried lives that keep us from stopping and reflecting on the fact that we're all going to die someday. And so there is this incessant demand for efficiency, productivity, achievement, together with the imminence of technology, the endless scroll, nonstop notifications, they mix together to form this poisonous cocktail that is brilliantly designed to keep us too busy, too distracted, too entertained, too caffeinated, to stop and reflect and ask ourselves, what is the point of all of this? And so when someone does end up asking a question like the Koheleth, it's easy for us just to laugh because it's awkward and uncomfortable. And then click next episode and whatever... Netflix special has been playing in the background. And so, at risk of being too direct, my gentle encouragement to all of us is grow up. Be an adult. Have the guts to ask and keep asking the hard questions of life. Don't run from the void. Let's look at it together because if we do, I'm convinced that the gospel will shine all the more brightly when placed on top. So three things that are vanity. The, the vanity of pleasure, Wisdom and work. First, let's talk about the vanity of pleasure. In the beginning of our chapter, so verses 1 to 11, the Koheleth details his experiential quest for happiness. This is not some ivory tower academic musing about the meaning of life in an intellectual sense. This is a man who searches the earth for something, anything that's going to make him happy. Every carnal desire he has, he satisfies, and he has the means to do so. Look at verse 10 with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. If he wants a house, this man gets a palace. 
If he wants wine, he gets buckets full. If he wants sex, he gets a mansion full of concubines. If he wants entertainment or gardens or pools or servants or animals, he gets it all and more. Everything he wants, he gets. Some of you are thinking like, sounds pretty nice. Who wouldn't want everything that they've ever wanted? In fact, for so many of us, the reason we haven't lived like the Koheleth is not that we are like righteous or mature or have a profound wisdom about us. It's just really that we haven't had the opportunity. The reason we don't overindulge in alcohol is not because we're sober-minded. It's because good scotch is expensive. We have to go to work tomorrow. The reason we didn't have endless sex is not because we see sex as a sacred act, but more because like, we're bad at flirting and scared of pregnancy. The reason we don't have seven vacation homes is not because we have an affinity for the simple life of prudence, but because interest rates are ridiculous right now, and one mortgage is more than enough. But what if you didn't have to go to work tomorrow? What if you had endless free time and resources? What if you could have sex with any sexual partner you wanted? What if you could build any home you felt like, anywhere you felt like? I I wonder how much of our holiness is true, spirit-wrought righteousness, and how much of it is due to mere convenience or limitations outside of our control. If you had zero consequences, if you had the means and the resources the Koheleth has, how would you live? This is fascinating because the Koheleth is unconstrained by all of the things that constrain us. No one in this room right now has the time, money, resources, or power to actually be able to get everything that we want. And the genius of this book is that the Koheleth had all of that. He gets it all and is still telling us it's vanity. It's vanity. And still, we foolishly believe that if we just had the things the Koheleth had, that somehow it would be different for us. The monk uh, Thomas Merton uses this analogy of a ladder. He says that that so many of us spend our lives climbing this ladder of pleasure only to get to the top of the ladder and realize that we've leaned it against the wrong building. We spend our lives climbing this ladder all the time believing that if we just climb one more rung, we will finally be satisfied. Now, you're familiar with this feeling of ladder climbing. I'm guessing not many of you have mansions filled with concubines. It's a good thing. But you're familiar with this feeling. The the updated new house is magnificently satisfying for roughly the first year. And then other people's homes start seeming larger and more impressive than they used to. Your marriage is like this idyllic, picturesque model of love. It's a romantic masterpiece. That is, like, until you have that first big fight a few weeks after the honeymoon or on the honeymoon. That new car, the article of clothing, the new boyfriend, 
the long-awaited retirement, the driver's license, job promotion, role in the play, spot on the team, the money saved, degree completed, all of these things make us so happy until they don't. And then we're left back where we started, chasing the wind, grasping at straws, thinking maybe one more rung on this stupid ladder might finally do it. So what do you want? Like right now, what do you want? And do you really think it'll be any different this time when you get it? You really think that that pesky discontentment will finally ultimately go away if you just climb one more rung on this ladder? Here's the Koheleth, thousands of years ago, having climbed to the top of the same ladder we're on, unable to go up any further, shouting down at us through Ecclesiastes, there's nothing up here. We've leaned our ladders against the wrong building. That's the first thing Koheleth says is vanity. It's pleasure. It's ungraspable smoke. It looks like there's substance to it until you try to grab it and then it slips through your fingers. The second thing that the Koheleth says is, is vanity is wisdom. Pleasure doesn't satisfy, so in verses 12 to 17, the Koheleth turns his attention to wisdom. Right? If, if outright hedonism doesn't satisfy this man, perhaps knowledge, wisdom, intellect will. Now, this might sound strange at first, to call wisdom vanity. Like, isn't wisdom a good thing? Aren't we supposed to be wise? Isn't the genre of writing of Ecclesiastes called wisdom literature? Right? It's important to note that the Koheleth isn't opposed to wisdom as wisdom as much as he's opposed to wisdom being seen as the ultimate solution to the problems of life. Wisdom is valuable. Right? Look, look at verse 13. He admits, there is more gain in wisdom than folly. So the Koheleth still sees having wisdom as better than not having wisdom. He's simply opposed to the idea that wisdom is an all-encompassing solution to life's most fundamental problems. This is probably especially relevant to our culture today. We live in an education age, an age of intellect where the solution to every social ill is, first and foremost, better education. What should we do to fight racism? What's the answer to income inequality? How should we react to hate crimes? What's the way out of poverty? The social response in our current cultural moment is almost always better education. And like there is truth to that. We need better education. And but while there's truth to that, the Koheleth puts his finger on the ultimate shortcoming of wisdom. Namely, that wisdom is vital but it cannot mend our hearts. And in the end, we all die anyway. When it comes to the most basic problems of life, even wisdom is vanity. It's useless in solving our world's brokenness. Right? You know who is well-educated? Al-Qaeda. Osama bin Laden had degrees in economics, business administration, engineering, most members of Al-Qaeda were and are more educated than most people in this room right now. A surprising number went to medical school and are doctors. Many have our equivalent of multiple master's degrees, and they put bombs in hotels and fly planes into buildings. Education is not the end-all solution that we think it is. 
Our world is broken. And the brokenness can't be educated out of us. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson says, there are some things that education, even the best education, is powerless to do. It cannot untangle the twists in the human heart. It cannot make up for what's lacking in the soul. Perhaps the Koheleth, too, had noticed that some of the most intelligent and well-educated people are among the saddest and most tortured of individuals. The big thing that wisdom fails to do for us, says the Koheleth, is defeat death. So he says in verse 16, For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will be long forgotten. How the wise dies, just as the fool. In ancient Rome, there was this military tradition where uh, after the Romans would defeat uh, an enemy, they would come back in and they would parade through town and the general would sit in this massive chariot, all decked out, drawn by four horses, and people would cheer for this general. They would bow down and worship him as divine. This was the most lauded honor in all of Roman society. And he would be paraded through the streets as people cheered him on. And, and sitting behind this general was a slave. And the slave's only purpose through the entirety of the procession was to whisper just loud enough that the general could hear it, but the crowd could not, again and again and again for the entire time, memento mori. Memento mori. Which means, remember you're mortal. Remember you're mortal. You're mortal. It doesn't matter if you're a general or a slave, a sage or a fool. We're all headed to the same place. Church, you're going to die someday. Do you feel your heart beating? Really, feel it. You have an allotted amount of heartbeats in your life. And every time you feel your heart beat, that's a heartbeat you will never get back, and it's one closer to your unstoppable death. And you can't do anything about it. You cannot stop the marching of time. Eat more vegetables as you, if you want. Exercise as often as you want. Go on your runs. Do your yoga class. Drink your nasty kale smoothies. You can't stop death. The best you can do is delay it. And even then, sometimes it finds us. Soon enough, your face will be painted with makeup. Your body will be put in the ground. And it doesn't matter if you've got three PhDs or you've never been to kindergarten. Your body will rot and you will be forgotten. The things of life find their proper proportion in the face of things of death. And the Koheleth is here saying, yeah, wisdom's important. Yeah, Absolutely but you're going to die someday and your intellect is not nearly the solution that you think it is. No one is wiser than the Koheleth. You, you read last week in chapter 1 that he had surpassed in wisdom everyone that was over Jerusalem before him. 
Ben Bechtel is a brilliant person. He's one of the smartest people I know. And in comparison, the Koheleth would make Ben Bechtel's IQ look like room temperature. He is smarter than all of us combined. Here he is at the top rung of wisdom's ladder, shouting down at us through this text, there's nothing up here either. So he describes the vanity of pleasure, the vanity of wisdom, and finally the vanity of work. The last place he turns in our chapter is to his work in verse 18, and he writes, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, Yet he'll be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. In some ways, this is hard to believe that this is an ancient book, that it was written thousands of years ago. It seems like it could have been written by like a disgruntled businessman as he talks to his psychologist. Think about this. This is a sobering reality for all of us who are at all upwardly mobile and kind of incessantly encouraged both explicitly and implicitly to tie our identities to our jobs. Someday you will die and you'll be forgotten. Someone else will have your job, if your job even still exists, and no one will remember you. What then of your salary, your promotions, your title, those fancy letters after your name? For some of you, you've retired already and you are living this right now. Now for sure, this is a thought to have before you go work that double or work on the weekends or pick up yet another side hustle. And it applies both to our our work at our job, but also the work that we do around the home. Or someday in the future, some other family will buy your house. They'll take down all the decorations that you got from Home Goods and Hobby Lobby and they'll throw them all in a big dumpster out front. They'll paint over the accent wall that you painstakingly selected after a few thousand trips to Home Depot and arguing over a few million color splotches. And as they paint over it, they'll chuckle to themselves about why anyone in their right mind would have picked the color you did. They'll have their own Christmas tree set up in your living room. And they will sleep, make love, and argue in what used to be your bedroom. And they won't remember you. They won't even know your name. And they might be fools. The husband might beat his wife in what's now your living room. The wife might have an affair in what's now your bedroom. So so like, how important really are all those home projects you're stressed about getting done this summer? The Koheleth looks at the work he has done and says, this is vanity. It's smoke. This man has outworked every single one of us. He's achieved more than you ever will in your entire life. He's a bigger workaholic than all of us combined. He has climbed to the top rung of the work ladder and is yet again shouting down at us. There's nothing up here either. Pleasure is vanity. Wisdom's vanity and work is vanity. The Koheleth brilliantly points out that the stone statues we've spent our lives chiseling have been made out of smoke all along, and we've spent our decades chiseling the air, climbing ladders leaned against the wrong building. It's vanity. 
So where's, where's Jesus in all of this? I hope, I hope by now you feel like a little uneasy, a little desperate. You should. If Ecclesiastes is all that is true, then you and I have nothing left to do than like, let's go get lunch, feast, get drunk. We might as well enjoy life before it's over. The good news, that the diamond placed upon the black felt of Ecclesiastes is that Ecclesiastes is not all that is true. There's a broader perspective, another side to the coin. A few hundred years after the Koheleth wrote these words, another teacher came along teaching also about the vanity of life. Now, that's not unique, right? Every thinker, philosopher, theologian has had to deal to some extent with life's apparent meaningless, from the Koheleth to Aristotle to Immanuel Kant to Justin Bieber, everybody has to deal with it to some extent. But this teacher named Jesus was unique. Just like the Koheleth, he talked about himself as the son of David. This rabbi, Jesus, came with a wisdom unprecedented. The Koheleth was the wisest person to rule over Jerusalem. This rabbi was the wisest person to step foot on planet Earth. He too came teaching about the vapor, the vanity of life, saying things like, what's the point of worrying about tomorrow? You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Your life is a mist. And why do you you store up treasures for yourselves on earth? Robbers can break into your house and take that stuff. Moths and rust will eat your riches. It's vanity. Sound familiar? But more than just teaching about it, just like the Koheleth and just like all of us, this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, faced the void himself. He felt the vanity of it all in his bones. He wrestled with how temporary everything was and how fleeting everything feels. On his knees, alone in the dirt, abandoned by his friends in a garden, he cries tears of blood because our teacher, too, is terrified of dying. But more than just teaching about the vanity of life, and even more than suffering under it, Jesus did something about it. As wise as the Koheleth was, all he could do about the vanity of life is describe it. Not brilliantly describe it, but all he could do was describe it. Jesus comes along and resolves to change it. He says things that the Koheleth could never say. Things like, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Rest from your endless search for pleasure, wisdom, and work. Rest from your stupid ladder climbing. And even further, he resolves to defeat the cause of all the vanity of life. Death itself. He dies, comes back to life, never to die again. And he promises all that trust in him and put their faith in him that just like he rose from the grave and defeated death, so too will all who put their faith in him. For them, for us, for followers of Jesus, life is not ultimately vain because we're guaranteed a resurrection. 
Right? If this is true, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, this changes everything. The gospel is not just a happy story that's nice if it's true. You need it to be true. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Ecclesiastes is the end of the story. It's the whole truth, and we should all go get lunch right now. If Jesus hasn't resurrected, then we've wasted our lives, and our lives are meaningless. But if Jesus really raised from the dead, then Ecclesiastes is only half the story, and there is a new world awaiting us after our death that can never be taken away because of his resurrection. And so, may we throw off our vain idols. May we cast them aside. The idols of pleasure and wisdom and work. May we throw them off as if they are nothing. Because they are. May we follow Jesus, our great teacher. The ultimate son of David. As if everything depends on it. Because it does. And may we cling to the resurrection of our teacher as if it is the only hope in a world of smoke and passing vapor, because it is. Will you pray with me? Father, would you send your spirit to us now? Through your spirit, would you give us the wisdom, the courage, and discernment to cast off our vain idols? Would you help us once again look to Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, who suffered under the weight of the curse, who felt the vanity of life, and who has promised to do something about it. It's for his name and in his sake we pray. Amen.